If you have your Bibles, we're going to encourage you to go to Exodus. We're going to share a couple things. We've been in an Exodus series, which means we've been charting through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, chunk by chunk, and we've been skipping over quite a few things, but we've been trying to get to as much as we possibly can to point out some grand themes and some grand narratives. I'm going to read a section, and there are some words in this particular message that you may be interested to highlight, to circle, and make some notes in the margins of your Bible, because uh, I'm going to share with you what I think to be some very important terminology in what's going on in Exodus in a message I'm entitling, Bread and War, Gravity and Glory. Bread and War, Gravity and Glory. Uh, We'll read a portion from Exodus chapter 16, and then we will go on. Before I do, I just want to pray for our message time as we get into God's Word here and share. Lord, I thank you so much for the journey that we've been on in charting through this teaching series. I ask that as we have done in the past, that we would just be enlightened once again at the power of your word and the power of these stories. And uh, we are reading ancient texts, but they have such relevance for us today in who we are and how we identify ourselves and um, the challenges that we face that I pray that our souls would just pay attention that we would just truly stop for a moment and and hear and listen what you would have. And for all my friends that have gathered into this place tonight, from wherever they've come, I pray that you would speak to them in your way, by your spirit, in a way that only you can speak to them. And I pray that we would leave this place different people, changed once again, enlightened once again. And I pray this in your name. Everybody said... Amen. Exodus chapter 16, verses 6 through 8. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. This is a really powerful passage. For those of you who have been with us, you know that the Exodus story has just happened. We've gone through amazing narratives parting of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, as we've been teaching, the plagues, the conflict with Pharaoh. And now we come to post these big events and now entering into what is popularly known as the desert wanderings or the wandering through the the Sinai Peninsula. And we can give you some of the geography of that. And they get to this particular point and they start to do what all of us start to do, which is to grumble because it's just not exactly what we thought it was going to be. Immediately before this verse, in verse 6, we have this verse, verse 3. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, now catch this, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. (laughs) Because, Because that's exactly what Moses intended to do. That's exactly what God intended to do. We're going to free you and liberate you so that we can starve you to death. This is a great narrative to live by, isn't it? And a narrative, by the way, if I may say so, 
that we all tell ourselves all the time. This, the crying out, for those of you who caught the first couple messages, the crying out to nobody, just in pain and in suffering and injustice. This oppression, harshness, taskmasters that are really doing damage to your heart and your soul, pushing you beyond extremes, after you've been liberated becomes this. Oh, wait, I, I remember back then we had tons of food. Wait, we had everything we wanted. We had meat. We, before, it was this. But now, after, once you get into a new situation, a new circumstance, the past looked like this. Mm, I remember those good old days. I, I, I don't know about whips and chains and slaves, what all, but, but this I remember. And this, I think, illuminates for us one of the great pieces of human condition that we all face, even to this day, that longing for the known past, that all of us are longing for something that we know, that's something familiar, that's something that we are, uh, that we have deep in our memory. And that when we look past, when we look back to what it is that we have known, we believe that it was actually better than it was. This is the classic case of the grass is always greener on the other side. How many of you have gone through transitions, changes, shifts, and you've gone from one circumstance that you thought was really horrible, and you've jumped into another circumstance only to find out, well, actually, maybe that previous circumstance wasn't as bad as I thought it was. I think all of us have been there. And the Israelites are saying this exact same thing. Back then, do you know what we had? We had meat in pots cooked for us. And we had all the bread, all the food that you would eat. But now that we're out here liberated, free, almost perhaps now that we're going to have to take care of ourselves, I remember what life was like back there. It was actually wonderful. This is contrasted with a complexity, which is you would think that the Israelites would know by now. You would think that there would be some sort of understanding that would ground the Israelites in their identity, in God's provision, in the safety and security of their life moving forward. God clearly spoke, said, I remember my covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and because of my remembrance, I'm going to now act. God shows up to Moses in a fiery bush that burns but does not burn up. Then God performs miracles, signs in front of all of the Egyptians as well as the Israelites. And then you have the plagues. The plagues are clear indicators. God is hearing you. God is for you. God is protecting you. God is going to provide for you. And then, of course, this great event, the parting of the Sea of Reeds. They are now liberated through this amazingly miraculous, supernatural kind of thing. You would think, you would think, that these Israelites would have gotten it, that God is going to be the provider, that God is going to take care of them, that God is going to be with them all throughout this time. Is that what happens? Is that what happens? No, this is what they say. If only we had died by the Lord's hands, right? If only we had died in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Isn't this all of us? Every single one of us. 
from one circumstance, one transition to another, thinking that what I had back then was, wasn't really all that great to transition into something that you actually wanted, liberation and freedom, only to look back on the past and say, oh, things were really, really good back there. Now, this is going to set up the scene. This is going to set the backdrop. This story, all of that narrative is going to set the backdrop for what is coming next and the famous passages that God is going to provide for them in the desert. Two specific things that they're going to provide. The first is going to be quail, and the second is going to be manna, manna from heaven. So what we're going to do is take a look at these two particular pieces of the puzzle, specifically the manna piece, and try to extrapolate from that particular provision that God gives them and ask the question, what is really going on in the story, juxtaposed with this idea that God has been providing, God has been providing, God has been providing, and yet they still don't get it. They still think being back in Egypt is essentially going to be better than the life that they're living now. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the quail, but there's some fascinating stuff from an archaeological uh, standpoint uh, and just from a modern history standpoint. And I wanted to show you a little bit of a clip because in a couple narratives in the Old Testament, there's quail that comes from the sea and you capture this quail um, as it comes off of the sea. And this is exactly actually what happens still to this day. I want to show you this clip. It kind of gives you an idea of what it is that uh, modern people do uh, to capture this quail. But then I want you to pay attention to the phraseology of the last person that mentions this. So take a look at this. Dozens of men are preparing their silk nets to trap the migrating quail. Muhammad Ghanan's nets are empty so far. But as dawn breaks, he finally catches one. Eaten. The quail is one of the most delicious meats because it eats natural food unlike the farmed birds. It's completely luck and nothing to do with special techniques. It depends on what God sends you. You hear that phrase? It's completely luck, has nothing to do with technique. It only depends upon what God sends you. And I love that clip because this is essentially the narrative in the story of why God is giving quail and giving manna at this particular time in this particular place. Now, what the heck is this? This is coriander seed, and the Bible talks about manna coming down from heaven. We're going to talk about that a little bit. So this is a picture of coriander seed. I actually brought some manna for you, and I thought to myself, if you're ready for it, if manna were to come down from heaven, ready? That's good. Okay, now, this is about the closest thing that I could find that represents the very thing that God has sent in accordance with how the biblical narrative describes this. So sorry if anybody got hurt. We won't throw things next week. Maybe. Okay, now, the question is, as soon as you get this, does anybody have any comments or questions? Okay, there's no milk. Does anybody have any... Co- I, I was afraid this was going to happen. My illustration is going to fall, fall apart. But if you, were, if you were to see this, if you woke up in the morning, and I w- actually wanted to throw this all over the floor without the Ziploc bags, but I don't think that would have been good for our rental policy. Anyway, if you were to wake up in the morning and you were to see this, what would be one of the things that you would say? What is it? And this is exactly the key 
word that is used for manna. We're going to get there. Manna actually means what is it? What is it? Does anybody know what this is? Frosted flakes, right, because it had the white on it. So anyway, you know what this is. But what is it? What is this stuff? And why is this so important? Now, biblical scholars, especially from a Christian end of things, and usually when I've been in Bible studies with Christians before about this Exodus story, what is it ultimately that we're asking about this whenever we get to this manna passage? You know, ironically, the question that is often asked is, well, what is it? I actually want to know what it is, which is so ironic to me that I've, ha- I've been in Bible studies before. Where we're like, okay, let's really find out what it is. When the Bible says it is like, what is it? That's what its name is. And we're in a Bible study trying to figure out what it is. When it doesn't describe what it is, it just says, what is it? So the Bible doesn't tell us. The Exodus story doesn't tell us what it is. It tells us what it's like. White, flaky, like coriander seed, it comes up from the ground off of the dew. But it doesn't tell us what it is. And then it tells us the Israelites ate it for 40 years. Can you imagine eating Frosted Flakes for 40 years? Whew. No. (laughs) That's a bad idea. Okay, Alesti, you can have Frosted Flakes for 40 years. Um, there's There's a narrative in the story in the witch in which this thing is constructed that I think would highlight for us a little bit about what's going on with the manna and the quail, specifically with the manna. I'd like to point out a couple things for you. Remember this passage. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food that we wanted. Now, this word food in the original Hebrew is actually this word lechem. Everybody say lechem. Lechem is this word that is used for the word food. It's also translated bread. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Remember that connection. Now, if you were to read this in the English, you may not put those two together. But in the biblical mindset, these two are intricately tied. They were saying, we don't have any food out here. And back in Egypt, we had all of the food, all of the lechem. And then God says immediately in this next verse, I'm going to rain down Lechem. He's putting those two together. He's answering their complaint directly, even though in your English translation it might be translated with two different words. Now, I will rain down bread from you. The problem is, rain down, I threw out food on top of you. I apologize again if anybody got hurt. But later on, the food actually doesn't come from heaven. It actually comes from below. So something radical is going on here. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. All of the things that you now have, the manna that was there. I think there's something going on with this connection. They were complaining about food not being had while they're out in the wilderness. They were complaining that food was abundant when they were in Egypt. And now God answers and says to them, I'm going to give you all the food that you need. Lechem. I'm going to give all of this that you need. And the reason why I think that word, this word specifically is important, is because throughout the biblical narrative, there are three meanings that are tied to this word. Now, the first is the clear definition of bread, Um, food. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Genesis 3.19. Remember, that was one of the curses from the Adam and Eve story. And it says food, but it's really this word lechem. It's this word bread. 
Um, so there's a Genesis 3.19 definition. There's also a Jeremiah 11 definition. Let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name uh, be remembered no more. Now this word fruit is also the same word lechem. It's the same word for food, same word for bread. So bread, lechem, food, fruit, this is all the same thing. It's all about provision. It's all about sustenance. And then you have this amazing passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. In the literal Hebrew, cast your lechem, cast your bread upon the sea. And this is a Hebrew colloquial to mean be generous and do good deeds randomly. And you never know what kind of return is going to come. But the generosity comes from what it is that you have been provided. Same word, lechem. Fruit, bread, food. Even back in the Moses story, back in Exodus chapter 2, Reuel is there and he sees his daughters who come back and he hears this story of this Egyptian who has saved his daughters. And his daughters come back and tell the story and he says, where is he? Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Literally, invite him to come and eat bread. Participate in the lechem. There's even a greater definition with this word in this first definition. In Genesis 54, verse 31, he offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. That's the NIV translation. In the original Hebrew, he offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and called his brethren to eat bread, and they did eat bread, and they spent the night there. Now, is that word, lechem, literally bread? Because what did they just do? They made a sacrifice. So that word bread doesn't even refer to grain in that particular passage. It actually refers to meat. So this word lechem, which is translated bread and food and fruit, is even referred to in some passages, in this passage, as meat. And that altar picture, I think, is important because this is exactly the image that we've been using through our Exodus series, an altar in which the provision, the bread, the food, the sustenance has been given for us. So this first definition is really, really important to grasp. First definition of this word lechem, food, fruit, meat. It has this meaning and connotation of livelihood, income, sustenance, provision. It can even mean a meal. Anytime there is something within your life that provides this for you, that is what lechem means. That is what this word bread, food means. So when God says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you, he's not saying I'm literally going to rain down, you know, ground wheat molded together with yeast upon you. He's saying that I am going to rain down upon you livelihood, provision, income, all the sustenance that you need in order to survive. That's that word, lechem, provision. Think of this word deeply imbued with everything that you need. When you get a paycheck, that is lechem. When you go to the store and you put food in your grocery 
cart. That is lechem. It's all of that together. Fascinatingly enough, the word for house in Hebrew is the word beit. Everybody say beit. And if you were to put the house, beit, in front of this word lechem, you would get the word Bethlehem. The house of provision, the place where all of your sustenance is going to be taken care of. And Jesus, later on in the story, is going to be born in the city of the house of provision. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that a beautiful story? Now, there's a second definition that comes, and it's connected to this idea. Provision, sustenance, everything that you need for livelihood and for living. What happens when there is no bread? What happens to societies, to people, when there is no sustenance, when there is no provision? What happens to us? The other definition, if you just add two words to the sides of the word lechem, and you have the word milchama, which is a word that means war, conflict. First definition, provision, connected to this word lechem is now this word war, conflict, social unrest, people not getting along, all of a sudden people in uprising and in fighting, which also asks and begs the question, does the word Bethlehem, and there's some commentators which would suggest that the word Bethlehem actually doesn't mean house of bread, it actually means house of war. Now there's a big debate going on about that, so you can look it up if you're interested, but that has really deep connotations. And I think it's no coincidence that those two words have definition and have meaning connected together. When there is no sustenance, when there is no provision, when there is no livelihood given, what is the natural implication for humanity? War and conflict. And that's this word that shows up later on in Exodus 17, actually, because hands were lifted against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And that's that word, milchama, milchama. In a very pithy way of saying it, many, many years ago, if you've ever run into people that have all these wise, pithy sayings, I heard somebody many, many years ago say this phrase, we're really only three meals away from war. What a nice way of summarizing that, that if there is no provision, if there is no sustenance, then this is the natural outcome, and it doesn't take long. Do you start to get a feel and a sense of the Israelites now? That if they happen to be out in the desert and if they're being led and they have no idea, no clue of what's going on and there is literally no food, do you start to get an understanding of the mindset that can set into people when you don't have that? If there is no provision, it's war. Lechem milchama. This, by the way, is resonant. All of these meanings, all of these tones are resonant in this phrase, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You know the Lord's Prayer from the Gospel of Matthew. Give us today our daily bread. But again, every single day, I need from you, God, provision and sustenance. Because guess what? If I go one day without that, what are the potential consequences for me, for my family, for society, for all of us? Do you, do you catch the tension of what's going on? I mean, sometimes there's a couple 
things that we can see these Israelites and say, what a bunch of wusses, right? Shouldn't they have gotten this? Shouldn't they, something have gotten into their brain? Like, didn't they see God move all along? And then all of a sudden, they're whining, complaining back at Egypt. But once you understand the connection, there is no lechem. There's no food. There's no provision. Then you start to get a sense of why these definitions emerge in this text. When there is no provision, when there is no food, there is war, there is conflict. Now, those two meanings come together in the third meaning, which is a little bit obscure, but if you search through some ancient commentaries, you'll start to see some resonances there, which is that some people suggest that the word lechem, bread, milchama, war, actually come from a deeper root which means to come together, to be joined together, to come close. Like bread is pushed and smushed together, all of the ingredients, and like in war, you are gathered together in order to fight offensively and defensively. Some have suggested that this word, lechem, actually comes from a meaning, comes from a word or some roots that may mean to come together and to be joined together. This is a picture of the showbread that is put in the tabernacle, for those of you who have studied some of that, this tent that the Israelites build out in the middle of the desert, and they build this, and they put this there. Why? Because it's there for the priest to eat, but again, it's for the priest to come closer, to be joined closer together with the very presence of God. Food, in this sense, is deeply spiritual. I should get a really hearty amen out of that one. Like, like, it, like, this is a spiritual act. When you sit around a table, when you break bread, when you share together, this isn't just about putting molecules into your body. It is about something that is now coming together, being joined together. And if this image doesn't do it for you, maybe a hot pot would do it for you, where you have to sit around and you are joined together by the ingredients. And if this doesn't do it for you, then maybe chicken and waffles will do it for you, right? So this, yes, comes together. And when you gather around a table, when you're sharing lechem, when you're sharing provision, you are coming Together, something is being joined together. This eating, this sharing, this dining together is deeply spiritual. And if this doesn't do it for you, well, stick around because we're having tacos later. Now, do you understand why we're having tacos today? Because this is a deeply spiritual... <laughs> this is a deeply spiritual event. Provision, livelihood, food, sustenance is all about coming together. It's about a joining together. It's about bringing together things that may have been distant. That's the third definition, and perhaps one of the most powerful definitions of what's going on here. Now, let's go back to this passage that we opened with in Exodus chapter 16. Given those definitions, given that meaning set, given all of that, what God is doing with the Israelites through this narrative, Take a look at some of the key pieces of this puzzle here. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites in the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. This passage isn't about making sure that the Israelites are fed. This passage is about knowing 
coming together that you are going to know who this God is. And it is the God that brought you out of Egypt. This provision, this food, is not just about putting food in your body. It's about knowing. In the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. I'm going to get to, we're going to close on this particular word, glory, so that you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the, what's the word there? Lechem, all the provision, all the sustenance, all the things that you need in order to survive. This isn't about nutrition. This isn't about a specific kind of food. This is about bringing together and joining together two things that have been separated. And I love that this word glory is in the midst of this passage because the word glory in Hebrew, kaved, actually means heavy. It means weighted. It means something that has a lot of weight to it. And given what we know about gravity and given what we know about the things that are pulling things together, all of those physics lessons that we have, could it be in an image that by God providing lechem, by God providing food, by God providing sustenance, you will see his coming down and joining you around the table. You will see his glory, which means you will see the weight. You will see the heaviness. You will see his very presence in and amongst you. That's the point of this story. The reason why we ask the question, what is it? Is because it doesn't matter. The whole point of the story is that if they try to identify what it is, what takes precedence in their minds and what gets the focus? The item itself. Have you ever gotten moved on from a transition and received that job or received that paycheck or received that thing that you very much wanted? And in the receiving of the thing that you knew that you needed for your sustenance, the job or the thing that you got ultimately became it. And the question that this story poses in my mind of the manna being called basically what is it is to say, well, what is it really? Honestly, in the grand scheme of life and of my spiritual journey, what really is it? It's just it. So we'll call it whatever it is because the focus and the importance of the story is to feel and sense that it was God who brought you out. It was the very presence, the weight, and the glory of God that came down. And so often, and we will see this over and over and over and over again with the Israelites throughout biblical history, that we get distracted with the thing that God provided, not with that God provided it. What is it? We don't know. We don't care. We don't even want to know. It's kind of like coriander seed. It's kind of like white flaky substance. It's kind of like frosted flakes. So if you really, really need an image, frosted flakes, there's your image. But the whole point is calling it what is, is, is honestly both a statement of inquiry, but also a rhetorical statement. What is it? This is God's provision. That's what this, what's that job that you have? That was God's provision. What's that relationship that you have? That was God's provision. 
What was that food that's on your table? Special meal. That was God's provision. The Israelites come out of Egypt. It was way better back there. Totally distracted with the pots of meat and all of the food that they could have. And so God provides for them once again without a name because it's not about what it is that they ate. It's about that God provided it. Fast forward many, many years. And Jesus is tempted in the desert, very much like the Israelites were tempted in the desert. The resonances are just uncanny, almost as if someone intended it to be. And the devil comes along, the tempter, the accuser comes along and says, if you're really hungry, turn these stones into bread, into food, into the very thing that you want and that you need. And what does Jesus reply? Man does not live on bread alone. Why? Because it's not about the thing. It's about recognizing that it's the provision from God, which is a resonance back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. What is it? It's bread, lechem, provision, sustenance, all the things that God has provided. But ultimately, it's about the weight and the glory of God coming to be in our presence. When God gives us provision, you will feel and sense his weight, his very presence. God is the provider of sustenance and life. That's what this is. And in the breaking of the bread together, as we share, as we dine together, as you eat together, as we share in what God has provided, then something radically beautiful is happening. The coming together of you and of God the coming together of all of us as a community and the coming together of you and God and us as a community with his very presence, with his very provision. That is what is coming together. And that is what bread and war and gravity and glory is all about. And just because I have to do it, all of that, they're really great. <laughs> Lord, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for these amazing people. And we've gathered together because you are doing something in our midst. You are, your presence is joining us together, filling us, transforming us, allowing us to become better people and greater followers of you. But Lord, I pray that even in our church, we could get so distracted with what it is, the physical stuff, the food stuff, I pray that our eyes would be lifted up to seeing that is the very glory of your presence, the very weight and heaviness of your presence here in the midst of us. That is what our journey is truly all about. And I pray that as we turn our eyes upward towards seeing you, that any disappointments or concerns that we have about the thing that is before us would just dissipate. And we would truly call it what it is. What really is it in comparison to who you are? So as we break together and as we dine together and as we play together, Lord, may your presence be here in and among us. And we pray this in your name. Everybody said?
Amen.